0: EU Confidential will get started right after this message.
1: Today's episode is presented by ERT, the European Roundtable for Industry. ERT brings together more than 50 CEOs and chairs of European industrial companies operating worldwide to address a range of themes including competitiveness and innovation, digital transformation, international trade, energy transition and climate change and strengthening Europe's place in the world. Find out more at www.ert.eu. We have reached an agreement on climate
2: change. We took this decision with respect for many concerns of different countries because we know that it is important to take into consideration the different national circumstances
0: Welcome to EU Confidential. I'm Andrew Gray, Politico's EU editor, and we're coming to you from the European Council Summit in Brussels in the early hours of Friday morning. We'll get to the results of the summit so far in just a few minutes. We know there's another big story tonight, the UK election, but we'll let the dust settle on that one and come back to it next week. So first, let's set up the big issues that were at play around the table at the summit. Earlier in the evening, I sat down with three of our reporters. So with me now in the uh, atrium of the European Council building, it's something of uh, a novelty for us. Um, you've heard of film noir, this is podcast noir. We're in the dark in a terrace above the big atrium where all the journalists are. And with me are Politico's climate and energy reporter, Paola Tama. Hi, Paula. Hi. Also Lily Bayer, our EU budget reporter. Hi, Lily. Hi, everyone. And with me, right next to me, David Herzenhorn, our Chief Brussels Correspondent. Hi, David. Hey there. It's
3: a bit nicer than the big
0: tent at NATO, isn't
3: it? It is, and we've got a lot of extra space without all the Brits are off uh, covering their elections. Yeah,
0: it's weird. It's strange to have a a European Council summit that is not full of British reporters uh, breathlessly uh, talking about Brexit, which means that we can talk about some other things, such as the future of the planet, which is the main uh, subject of discussions this evening at the summit particularly the issue of whether the EU should aim to be carbon neutral by 2050. Paola, tell us a little bit about what Charles Michel, the European Council president, wants to achieve tonight and why that's proving difficult.
4: So this goal has been on the EU agenda for over a year now. The Commission proposed last year that we should go climate neutral, meaning that greenhouse gas emissions should hit net zero by 2050. But there's still three holdouts, so at this stage 25 countries agreed and then three, and that's Poland, Hungary and the Czech Republic are still holding out, mainly citing cost concerns. Now, what Charles Michel wrote to EU leaders ahead of this summit is, we need to go there. The Commission has also made it its key strategic priority, coming out one day ahead of the EU summit with a Green Deal for Europe, which at its heart has this goal, Now the whole name of the game tonight is Deal or No Deal and it will be down to these three countries to determine what story we'll be writing. Okay,
0: so when you say uh, it's about cost, what's the financial aspect here?
4: The largest economy which is currently not on board is Poland and that's largely because it relies for almost 80% of of its electricity on coal. And obviously that's also true for the Czech Republic, which has still some coal mining, whereas for Hungary it's related more to poverty concerns. But mainly these countries are arguing that this is too ambitious a goal for economies which still need to catch up with what is the EU average standard of living, and that they should get some sort of support to do that. So the talk of a just transition fund.
0: Okay, let's just hear from a couple of the leaders when they arrived at the summit about what they reckoned of the prospects of getting an agreement on the climate were. First, let's hear from Croatian Prime Minister Andrei Plenkovic. Hello,
5: Prime Minister. Do you expect a climate deal today?
2: climate deal? I expect the climate conclusions.
5: And do you expect all countries to sign up to the 2050 goals?
2: I think the idea is to give support to the communication by the Ursula von der Leyen's Commission. I think she made really a great effort that within 10 days uh, of, of the start of her mandate, she managed uh, together with her, with the college to produce such a document. It's a great basis for the work ahead of us. And um, I think there will be enough uh, maturity among all the member states to support the conclusions that we can all live with.
0: And now here's the Prime Minister of Luxembourg, Xavier That's sweet.
5: Are you expecting a deal on the climate today?
2: I hope so. When we listen to the populations, if uh, uh, they and we represent them, we should not forget them. We should not forget that we are representative of the populations, and uh, they want to, to really to, not to inform, but they insist that we should do things. And uh, I hope we had common goals we uh, decided in Paris. We should not forget also to have a common agreement. So I hope that we will be able also to stick to what we say. That should be our job.
0: OK, well, a couple of views there at the beginning of the summit on the issues at stake and the chances of, of getting an agreement. But Paula was telling us lily that this is all tied to money. And that means also the EU budget is in play. That's meant to be another topic for discussion tonight at the summit. But in a sense, it's also part of the climate discussion. Right. Can you explain how they kind of link together?
5: That's right. So originally, the long term EU budget was said to be discussed tonight on its own. But what has happened is that it got completely interlinked with the budget debate. And that is because member states right now are incredibly divided over the size and shape of the next seven year budget, which will run between 2021 and 2027. And the problem that they're facing is that they're quite far from a deal But they have countries like Poland, Hungary and the Czech Republic who are asking for concrete financial guarantees to help them transition their economies and make them greener. And yet the other leaders are not really in a position to make financial guarantees without knowing how big the EU budget will be and what kind of money they will be spending on other programs. So they are in this strange situation right now where they are asked to be making promises which they can't really make.
0: Right. There's the big general budget discussion as well, right, which is meant to be advancing the seven-year budget. Uh, The current one runs out at the end of next year. Uh, Let's hear from um, Mark Rutte, the Dutch uh, Prime Minister, on what he thought were the prospects of progress on the MFF, as it's called, the multi-annual financial framework.
5: Prime Minister, just one question in English. Do you expect any progress on the MFF?
2: No. To be honest, no, no. This will just be giving greetings to our respective countries and And telling them that we, again, stick to our principles.
5: When can we expect progress?
2: No idea, no idea. I I hope before the next seven-year budget runs out.
4: So
0: there's Mark Rutte. Lily, uh, why is he so pessimistic and why, why has there not been any movement here on the budget? Why is none expected today?
5: So there's a group of five countries and Mark Rutte's Netherlands is one of them. The others are Germany, Austria, Denmark and Sweden. And they would like to see a smaller EU budget after Brexit. What they are saying is that uh, without one of the biggest economies in Europe, we simply don't need to be spending as much money on EU priorities. because they are the remaining big economies, they don't want to have their taxpayers paying even more into the EU's coffers. And then on the other side of the barricade, we have countries in Eastern Europe and in Southern Europe who are asking for even more EU spending. So these are countries like Greece, Italy, Hungary, Poland, Romania, And they also want the EU to keep spending on so-called traditional priorities, so agricultural subsidies and regional development. Whereas some of the more Western European countries, like Germany and the Netherlands, would want the budget to focus on what they call modern priorities. So for example, research, defense, migration and border security. And the two sides are still quite far apart. There are some countries that are more in the middle, like Ireland and even France. But as I said, it appears we are quite far from a deal. Um, There isn't really even a compromise on the size of the budget, let alone how much each of the priorities should get. And without that, I think it will take us still a few more months at least. And some officials have been telling us tonight that they expect a deal only in the second half of 2020.
0: Okay, and speaking of Ireland, Lily, earlier you caught up with the Irish Minister for European Affairs, Helen McEntee. Let's hear what she had to say.
5: Ursula von der Leyen has uh, put forward this idea of a just transition mechanism of 100 billion euros, quite ambitious. Is this something that Ireland would want to have access to?
6: Absolutely. I mean, this is obviously maybe going to be more significant for some of our Eastern partners and and obviously those who are trying to transition mainly uh, from coal-based industries. Um, But we do have in the Midlands, uh, in Ireland... A particular focus on peace and obviously we need to make sure that where we are transitioning and changing over people are not losing jobs but that we're creating opportunities and I think what's very important about Ursula von der Leyen's uh, vision and indeed the Commission's vision and, and Europe's vision is that this is not about the demise of anything this is not about people losing jobs this is about helping to create uh, newer jobs but also doing it in a way that is sustainable and that's looking to the future we know that so it's, it's a massive amount that's been suggested, but there's a huge amount of work to do here. So, you know, simply to answer your question, yes, we'll be looking to access it. Um, but I think we need to look at it in a positive way.
0: OK, David, let's look at the big political picture here. This is the uh, first summit with uh, Charles Michel, the former Belgian prime minister, as the president of the council. Why do you think he's gone big on climate on this first, uh, at this first summit? And why is Ursula von der Leyen, the Commission President, who's also brand new in her job, why has she also decided to make it priority number one?
3: Well, those two seem to be connected. I mean, certainly Ursula von der Leyen, as the new Commission President, has seen the protests on the street, hundreds of thousands, millions of young people, actually, if you count, around the world, demanding action by government leaders, really furious, that elected officials seem to have been sitting on their hands while the planet literally burns. But there is a great big question. I'd love to hear Paolo's view on this on why Charles Michel pushed forward with this right now. Did he have to have this fight in his very first European Council summit, knowing these three countries have blocked these more ambitious uh, carbon-neutral targets before, knowing that the Commission could push ahead? What I've heard from diplomats here is that the Council couldn't be silent. That with the commission moving forward aggressively, they would face lots of questions about why they didn't say anything at all. They had to make this push, knowing, though, that they could end up held hostage for a long time by these countries looking to extract as much in the way of guarantees, as much in the way of promises as they possibly could. But there's a real question of could they perhaps have waited until March? until they had a clearer sense of what this budget looked like, letting the Commission get started with its new deal, and that the more this slips, the feeling was the harder it would be, the bigger the risk would be that the EU could not get the uh, goals in place that it wants.
4: Right, so I think that there is two reasons, and one is the fact that Ursula von der Leyen has said it very well when presenting her own Green Deal, we cannot do this alone, and the EU will use every means at its disposal to convince other major economies to follow in its low-carbon path. So, failing to fulfill the promise to finalize its long-term vision by December, as leaders said in June, would look pretty bad in Madrid, where all world nations that are signatories to the Paris Agreement are currently discussing, the rules of the Paris Agreement and also would set back the EU in its momentum to be, as the Commission would want it to be, the climate leader.
3: But there becomes really a question of optics, right, because how bad does it look If the EU can't bring along the Czech Republic, Poland, Hungary, its own members on an act of kind of good faith, how do you persuade Saudi Arabia? How do you persuade China, India, Brazil, these developing countries that are much bigger polluters, that have a much bigger contribution to emissions around the globe, and much more to lose in terms of economic disruption?
4: I think that tonight will be a make-it-or-break-it moment, although the EU is very good at fudging, so maybe if we have a deal on climate neutrality in March... It will still be celebrated as success. But the Commission has also said that they won't care, essentially, if there is or not a deal, that they will go ahead presenting a climate law enshrining the goal of climate neutrality in March. And that is significant because it means they will no longer need the consensus. And then politically, we will see how that is received if that's the way it chooses to go.
0: Let me bring in Lily here because part of also what we're seeing, obviously, is a, is a kind of repeated theme, although some people will tell you that sometimes it's exaggerated, of a kind of east-west split. And that's what we're seeing again at, at Charles Michel's first summit as European Council President. How are these issues, uh, as much as you can say, as a former correspondent based in Hungary, How do these play out in Eastern Europe? Is the discourse, is the level of concern the same as it is in Western Europe? And does the Council and the Commission risk looking a little bit too kind of Western-focused by making this a kind of early priority?
5: I think it's very clear that Green parties have done a lot better in Western European countries than in the Eastern part of the European Union. However, there are still a lot of voters, even within the Eastern countries, especially in the capital cities, who do really care about environmental and green issues. But overall, the way that leaders in the region have been presenting it to their voters is that a transition should be made, but it will be incredibly costly, and the EU and not national governments should be bearing a big burden in paying for that transition. So for example, today, We saw Hungarian Prime Minister Viktor Orban arriving at the summit and telling uh, Hungarian state media that it's important to fight climate change, it costs a lot of money, but that quote, Brussels bureaucrats should not force poor people, that is eastern countries, to pay for the transition. So in reality, I think even for these governments, it's, it's really a matter of money. They're trying to show their voters that they're getting a good deal, just like Western European leaders are.
3: But Andrew, there's no question this split is felt on the other side. Northwest Europe wants to move forward with this aggressively. They're getting impatient. They're frustrated. Of course, they're going to have to come to terms at some point with the conflict that Lilly has laid out so clearly, which is they want the EU to be more ambitious. Mark Rutte, for instance, who's spoken quite often recently about the EU needing to be more assertive globally. Well, you've got to then pony up the resources to do that. And so if the Northwest of Europe is going to push really hard to fight climate change, to take on a bigger role in the world, the resources have to be there. And in fact, they can afford it. Overall, the EU budget is a tiny amount of money in the grand scheme of what Europe spends on its government and administration. But there's something very symbolic, very political. Keep in mind, there's a British election tonight. Brexit is in everyone's mind. The idea alone of each of these countries contributing more to the budget seems politically distasteful. And at the same time, if you want to be ambitious, you've got to provide the resources to do it. I mean, one of the things, obviously, that
0: we've seen with this this current set of EU leaders, uh, we were in this very building a few months ago when uh, finally the decisions were taken on who would be leading these institutions. There's meant to be a geographic balance, but we ended up without an Eastern European in one of these very top jobs. How conscious do you think Ursula von der Leyen and Charles Michel are of that issue? Do they have Eastern Europeans around them, people who can kind of see things through different eyes? Because obviously we had Donald Tusk in this job at the Council before.
3: Well, there's no question she's been mindful of this von der Leyen over at the Commission, where the Acting Secretary General at the moment is a Latvian. She also surprised a lot of people by appointing a Latvian executive vice president, uh, Valdis Dombrovskis, who has a big portfolio on uh, economic and finance issues. So she's clearly mindful of that. But the dynamics are very different in this EU summit room. The council is a different institution, a different beast. And going around that table, there's no question these Central and Eastern European countries are going to make themselves heard. They are doing it. They're holding this up. Uh, Dinner was late. We expect a late night of negotiations. Uh, It's very much a factor. One final issue we might just touch
0: on, which is kind of not on the official agenda, but I think on a lot of minds, is uh, the situation in Malta at the moment. We've had incredible developments, really, regarding the investigation into the murder of the journalist uh, Daphne Caruana Galizia. And um, those developments have certainly led pretty close to the door of the Prime Minister, certainly apparently implicating Aids close to the Prime Minister, who, of course, deny any wrongdoing. But how much of that is an issue, do you think, on people's minds, David? And do you think it will somehow emerge? Uh, is it going to be something that's at least asked about in the press conference, something where Charles Michel might say something?
3: We understand that uh, Rutte, for example, the Dutch Prime Minister, has said that if Joseph Muscat doesn't address this himself, he will bring up the issue and raise it. It is such an issue that uh, it's become quite awkward. We have journalists watching, for example, at the family photo, who is hanging out with Muscat, who is appearing with him. He's really, in some ways, viewed as a pariah at this summit. He's already announced that he will step down early because of all of this. It's uh, definitely on everyone's mind. Everybody's sort of trying to read the tea leaves here of how out is he among his peers.
0: Right. I think, Lily, you spoke earlier to Finland's uh, European Affairs Minister. Can you... Can you tell us her name?
5: Tutti Tiparinen.
0: Right, very good. I thought you would do a better job than me. And she had uh, something to say about this. Let's uh, hear from her now.
5: Over the past days, there's been a lot of talk in Brussels about the rule of law situation in Malta. As the presidency, are you concerned about what's going on? Do you think that the council should be taking steps when it comes uh, to the rule of law in that country? I think we are, we have all the reasons to be concerned and we have
6: to monitor the situation closely. And we have to analyze it and hear also mm, an explanation from each, each country. Now we have the Article 7 processes going on with Poland and Hungary, and it's very important that they still keep going on, that we continue, because the situation hasn't improved, instead it has gone worse. Rule of law is a very central element of our European cooperation and it's not a matter of opinion, it's not a moral uh, ideal, but it's a legal fact which is enshrined in our treaties. Article 2 states that the European Union is founded on the rule of law. That's why we have to be so persistent and adamant with this issue and it applies equally to every member state. Every member state.
0: So uh, let's see if Malta comes up in the course of the discussions uh, today or tomorrow but uh, as we said the focus has been very much on climate. Uh, We're recording at about half past 10 in the evening. We expect things to go on for hours yet so uh, we will be back uh, later with a few thoughts on how things have finally turned out. So here we are, some four hours later after that discussion. The summit has ended with EU leaders declaring that they have reached a deal for the European Union to be climate neutral by 2050. Here's new European Council President Charles Michel just a few minutes ago.
2: We have reached an agreement on climate change, but
0: that's not really the whole story. Poland didn't agree to sign up to becoming climate neutral as a country by 2050, claiming that it needed more time to meet that target. Now, when pressed on this point in the press room, Michel acknowledged Poland's position, but still insisted... Everyone was in agreement. Country, but
2: it's very important because for the European Union, the strong message we give today it is uh, we want to become the first uh, climate neutral continent by 2050. But for one member state, Poland, uh, we have understood that it it's necessary to take more time and to have a new occasion to discuss this topic with this uh, member
0: state. When questioned again on how they can claim this is an agreement when one country doesn't agree, he says...
2: Because we share the same goal, but we accept that one country uh, needs more time to decide about the implementation uh, of this goal. But we share the same
0: goal. So, some mixed messages coming out of the press room at the conclusion of the first day of this summit. Now, let's go from Brussels to Rome, where our own Matt Karnichnik recently interviewed the new European Commissioner for the Economy, Paolo Gentiloni. The interview took place at the Mediterranean Dialogue Conference, organised by the Italian Institute for International Political Studies. We'll hear highlights from their conversation right after a message from this week's sponsor.
1: A message from the European Roundtable for Industry. ERT brings together more than 50 CEOs and chairs of European industrial companies operating worldwide to debate and devise solutions to some of the biggest challenges facing Europe and thus help drive prosperity in Europe. In its latest publication on industrial strategy, ERT is convinced that the coming decade will be transformative for Europe. With the right policies in place at EU level to support climate action, digital transformation and international trade, European industry can become more competitive, incentivising more investment and employment in Europe, and creating more value for society. Find out more at www.ert.eu. Now
0: here's Matt Karničnik in conversation with Economy Commissioner Paolo Gentiloni. Gentiloni starts out by explaining what he thinks the EU needs to do to fulfil Ursula von der Leyen's ambition of having a geopolitical commission.
7: I think we need to try to merge much better some aspects of European policies. Foreign policy, defence policy. We can't be always discussing on uh, the plus and minus of NATO We are strongly convinced to be part of NATO, but we should also enhance our defense initiatives as European Union. We have to merge this foreign policy and defense with trade. And last but not least, even if if it is not an easy task, we have to strengthen uh, the international role of our single currency, the euro. So this is the general, uh, I think, horizon of a stronger geopolitical role for Europe, a pillar of this message and of this program is naturally the Mediterranean. Uh, Please don't forget that the Mediterranean is not only a north-south dimension, but we have also an eastern dimension involving the Western Balkans and crucial for the future of the Mediterranean. Our, what we call the neighborhood policy in uh, in the Union has these two fundamental targets towards the Western Balkans and towards the southern parts of the Mediterranean. These neighborhood policies uh, will be, I hope, I'm rather sure, I'm optimistic. A little bit strengthened from a financial point of view in the next multi-annual financial framework. It is obviously very diversified. Western Balkans, we have also the enlargement perspectives concerning a certain number of countries. And it is a success story that we should continue this story. And with uh, the southern shore of the Mediterranean, we have several tools of uh, association, of promotion of common interests, of financial cooperation also, that we have, I think, to strengthen if possible. And finally, I think one of the goals that we should uh, promote is a stronger integration in these region of the Mediterranean. Because both these regions, North Africa and the Western Balkans, have a weak level of inter- economic integration and connectivity among the countries. And I think that one of the role that Europe could play is to try to give a contribution to strengthen this
8: integration. How do you see the economy in the the European Mediterranean region developing, especially if you look towards Greece, where you know we've seen some improvements in Greece, and yet even as the economy is slowing, they're still being asked by the Commission to meet their primary surplus target of 3.5 percent. Do you think that that should continue or will you, as your predecessor also suggested, advocate for um, a, a little bit more flexibility there regarding Greece's targets?
7: Well, I think that Greece is clearly, since a few years, on the right track. And for this reason, in the meeting that we had two or three days ago, we delivered the possibility for uh, Greece to use 767 millions of interests of the loans that were uh, given to Greece. And we also decided to explore uh, the possibility, perhaps beginning next year, and obviously keeping the fiscal targets uh, from Greece to use this money also to promote investments. And I'm very hopeful that this could be done because it would give another boost to the right track of the Greek economy, which is very relevant not only for the Mediterranean but also for the whole Europe, taking in account where we were with the Greek crisis a few years
8: ago. What would you say as you look into the coming months will be your top priorities, especially if we see, as we're seeing now, the, the economy uh, continue to weaken? Where, where do you want to put your, your focus?
7: Two messages. One, uh, we have to continue uh, the process and the success story, that I said before, concerning the Western Balkans. Personally, I regret the fact that uh, the last European Council gave a different message, apparently, with breaks on this process, I think that we should uh, avoid this kind of messages and that this kind of decisions. Uh, second, we will uh, strengthen uh, our financial tools for what we call the neighborhood policy. Yes, the Union is by far the first economic and trade partner of the region both in North Africa, the Middle East, and uh, the Western Balkans. But we all know that if this kind of uh, reality, trade reality, economic partnership reality, is not cultivated, is not at the center of of your also political initiative, uh, we are facing uh, the initiative of several different actors and players in the region, they don't have at all the same leverage that the union has on the econo- from the economic point of view, but they have, and they are trying to increase their influence, uh, China, Russia, Turkey. So in this economic effort of the so-called neighborhood policy, there is also a strong political, and I would say even strategical dimension that I deem extremely
8: relevant for our future. And uh, another relevant political factor that I think is on a lot of people's minds now is the political s- situation in Italy and the effects that will have on the broader region. How long do you think the, the current government uh, will, will survive?
7: Well, this is... <laughs> This is something that should be asked to the Prime Minister. The tradition in Brussels is to refer to your country, calling it the, the country I know best. Uh, I, so what's the future I of, the the you know best. of the country I hope the government of the country I know best will have long life. Uh, I think that in the birth of this new government, there is something very relevant for the union, which is a clear-cut choice in favour of Europe. This is, I think, something that was very much appreciated all around Europe, and it is something the Italian people should be proud of.
0: No more than this. That was Matt Karnicchnick talking to Paolo Gentiloni, and that's all we have time for on this episode of EU Confidential. Don't forget to subscribe to the podcast so you never miss an episode, and you can always reach us at podcast at politico.eu. Special thanks this week to Lily Bayer, and thanks as always to our producer, Christina Gonzalez, and thanks to you for listening.